0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms?
1: Warren Harding signs a joint congressional resolution declaring an end to America's state of war with Germany, Austria, and Hungary. The guns have been silent for some time. Other allies in the war had already signed the treaty, but since the Senate rejected the Treaty of Versailles, including the League of Nations during Wilson's term, it fell to the Harding administration and the Republican Congress to draft a separate peace with Germany. Harding signs the bill restoring friendly relations. He then goes and plays a round of golf. It's 1921, and radio is getting its introduction. There are five radio stations. The World Series is broadcast by Newark, New Jersey station WJZ. In Atlantic City, New Jersey, 16-year-old Margaret Gorman wins the Golden Mermaid Trophy. Officials later dub her the first Miss America. In Wichita, Kansas, a strange edifice emerges, a tiny burger shack with just $700 dollars. Waldo, Ingram, and Walter Anderson open up their white castle. It almost didn't happen. They thought about getting into insurance, but speedily servicing customers a sack of five-cent hamburgers seemed easier to pull off. Speaking of speed, car sales were brisk, and the Model T was responsible for 61% of U.S. car sales in 1921. And so when you're driving, you can see under the hat brim, the fedora takes off as a fashion statement. It'll get a big boost mid-decade when the Prince of Wales Edward starts wearing it. Al Capone wore one. In this year, Al Capone leaves New York. He had quit school after the sixth grade and became associated with a notorious street gang. Johnny Torrio was the street gang leader, and he called Capone over because business was booming in Chicago. This would be the first year of full prohibition enforcement. Also booming in 1921, George Medford's wildly successful silent film, The Sheep, which will propel its leading actor, Rudolph Valentino, to international stardom. The American population was 108 million in 1921, a third of today's. There are 48 states, all but Alaska, and Hawaii were in the Union. And things were getting urban. 10% of the country lives in either Chicago, Philadelphia, or New York right now. The top state by population are those same states, New York, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, in that order. But the fastest grower among states is Michigan. That's what car sales will do. Texas is ranked fourth in the nation. It had been 18th in 1880. That's what oil and cattle will do. Yet for all these booming areas, the national economy was still in recession. The GDP was $671.9 billion down from the previous year. Signs were there for improvement, but it would take time. By the end of the decade, the GDP of the U.S. would reach $1 trillion. Woodrow Wilson is in Washington, D.C. Edith has set up his bedroom as it was in the White House. His bed, a replica of Lincoln's and his home has a solarium. Tourist buses go by Wilson's house and point out as the home of the ex-president. Every week, as if in a ritual, a car drives up and whisks the former president and Edith away to watch a movie. He receives a few visitors. He has a position, sort of, with a law firm, though he really doesn't take much work. His doctor is the same doctor we had while he was in the White House. The doctor will say later, he was constantly brooding, always thinking about politics. His mind never relaxed. For Wilson, there's not much reason to relax. He doesn't like the direction American foreign policy has gone. He's unhappy with the peace treaty, absent a league of nations. He hates that the GOP has picked up on his slogan, his words, America first but turn them to mean something different. It shouldn't be a selfish America first, that America looks out for its own interests only, but it should be that America leads first, that it is first in the world. A stubborn isolation, he will say later, a stubborn isolation is the problem with our politics. And the Emergency Quota Act is passed by the United States Congress, establishing national quotas on immigration. This drastically limits immigration from Eastern Europe. The London Schedule of Payments sets out the World War I reparations payable by the German Weimar Republic. 132 gold marks, some $33 trillion in annual installments of $2.5 billion. Secretary of State Commerce Herbert Hoover presides over something new, a conference on unemployment. The United States convened something not as new, a peace conference, but this is a peace conference with no war currently going on. The Washington Naval Armament Conference. Britain, France, Italy, and Japan. The United States limits capital ship tonnage. In Turkey, the new government, the so-called Young Turks that took over the country, are resistant to the deal made in Versailles. They fight off armies that are seeking to enforce the Versailles terms, Greek and Turkish armies clash. German newspapers pick up on what's going on in Turkey. Maybe some of them say, this is how we should treat the Versailles Treaty. At a meeting at the British Phrenological Society, members believe measurements of the skull give insights into people's character. And they've measured, second-hand, Vladimir Lenin, the new leader of the USSR. He had agreed to be sculpted, and the measurements of that sculpture arrived in Britain. British phrenologists have all of the records the leader of the new communist u s s r is a thinker and a planner the b p s says with great ideals, but he's also secretive and ambitious, and don't expect him to be considerate of the views of others, not with that skull. What they don't necessarily know is Leonard is depressed. The economic troubles of his new country surge. Why can't everything move faster? He orders that Pete become the new fuel of a new Russian age. It is plentiful in Russia. It just has to be cut out of the bogs where it grows and forms and dried out. Why can't everyone produce it? The new Soviet government orders that a textbook on peat production becomes standard in every house. Why can't it publish faster? The party is down with the fever, he thinks. Bread rations are cut. Factories with no fuel are shut down. No longer are there fears of a white army. But the Soviets fear their own now. Talk of syndicatism, of unions separate from the party leaders, taking over aspects of society, like the factories. Soldiers and peasants are in rebellion. Syndicatism is bad, bad, Lenin thinks. Where is the peat? Lenin must be pondering a vacation by this time, the stress getting to him. He'll ask the Politburo to grant him one at the end of the year. There are births in this year of 1921. Donna Reed, the American actress, Lloyd Benson, the senator, Prince Philip, Sugar Ray Robinson, Jane Russell, Nancy Reagan, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, Indonesia dictator, Suharto, Andrei Sakharov, the Soviet physicist and human rights activist, John Glenn, the American astronaut, Alex Haley, author, producer of Roots, Jesse Helms, Charles Bronson are all born this year Chanel No. 5, The Perfume, is launched by Coco Chanel. Researchers at the University of Toronto announced the discovery of the hormone insulin. And during an Armistice Day ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery, the Tomb of the Unknowns is dedicated by Warren Harding. RCA Corporation arranged to broadcast live the Jack Dempsey-George Carpenter heavyweight boxing match, with the company claiming the 300,000 persons Listen to the transmission. A record. There are poetic developments. Among the rain and lights, I saw the figure five in gold on a red fire truck, moving, tense, unheeded to gong clangs, siren howls, and wheels rumbling through the dark city. There's not really much to this poem by the New Jersey poet William Carlos Williams. There are only 31 words in the poem. But yet, it tells us how quickly, like that fire truck, life can pass us by, the transience of time compounded into the image. Williams is a doctor and a part-time poet still struggling to find an audience. He publishes a book called Sour Grapes, and he's forced to pay for it himself. New York Yankee pitcher, Babe Ruth hits his 138th home run during June. Ruth broke the career home run record that had been held by Roger Connor for 23 years. He would go on to extend his home run record to a total of 714. The New York Yankees would make their first World Series appearance in 1921, but they did not win. Ruth's record would stand for nearly 40 years until it was broken by Hank Aaron in 1974.
0: We generally call it the catastrophe because we feel like it wasn't a riot. We didn't. We were not the perpetrators. We were the victims.
1: Yet, all was not well everywhere. We lived like we were on Wall Street, remembered Otis Granville Clark, who when he was interviewed for a documentary was 105. He had lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma's Greenwood neighborhood, and as 1920 turned to 1921 restaurants and furriers and jewelry stores and hotels dotted the Greenwood neighborhood. It was an African American middle-class hot spot. A lot of folks, Clark said, would come in from New York and Chicago. We had a big time here in Greenwood. This was oil country, but that same prosperity would be coveted by others from May 31st to June 1st. Greenwood was littered with bullets raging with fire. It starts, supposedly, when Sarah Page, a white elevator operator, and Dick Rowland, a black shoe shiner, have some type of altercation. Rowland is suspected of some sort of assault and is arrested. Page decides not to press charges against him, and it's unclear what actually happened. Rowland is held at the Tulsa Courthouse, and newspapers start publishing sensational reports of the incident and potential lynching. A group of hundreds gather. They're white, and they form what looks like a lynch mob. The Tulsa County Sheriff orders his men to form a defensive position in order to protect Roland. And then, a small group of armed African American men, former veterans from World War I, come to the courthouse with their weapons to offer their assistance to the sheriff. They're turned away. But when the mob sees the armed men, many of them go out, gather their own weapons. Shots are fired, and fighting breaks out between the white mob and anyone in the black community they see. What's called a riot, and we hear that term so many times when what really is going on is a targeted massacre, happens now. In the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, the mob starts destroying homes and businesses, firing on anyone standing. The National Guard is called, but there are no hope. They start arresting black citizens and detaining them in a convention hall. Some 300 people died. The neighborhood will never be the same. Here's what one account from The Crucible, whose author, Charles Emerson, I had on earlier. The black section of town, Greenwood, local newspapers call it Little Africa, is soon encircled. The National Guard is called in. Fighting soon gives way to burning and looting. Whites accuse a shadowy organization called the African Blood Brotherhood of starting a race riot. But its representatives deny responsibility, asking instead, haven't black citizens have the right to defend their lives and property when they are menaced? Or is this an exclusive prerogative of the white man. 1921. A frightening new weapon emerges in racial violence. I could see planes circling in mid-air, says one victim, Buck Colbert Franklin. They grew in number and hummed, darted, and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling on the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire burning from its top. And then another and another And another building began to burn from their top. According to one witness, there was so much looting, burning, destruction of stores and homes and just stealing of property. For years, African American women would walk down the street and see white women walking down the street with their jewelry and would snatch it off. It's only very recently that the state of Oklahoma has passed a bill to provide reparations and scholarships for young people. In Germany, there's hyperinflation. 263 marks are now needed to buy a single American dollar, more than 20 times greater than the 12 marks needed in April 1919. What's more, there's violence and a very tenuous situation at the head of their government. Former finance minister, Matthias Erzberger, is going for a stroll at a spa when bullets fly. He couldn't have been surprised. His daily life, since four years before, had been marred with threats from right-wing terrorists, particularly a group called the OC, the Organization Council. Erzberger was a particular target. He was the leader of the left-wing group of parties called the Zentrum along with the chancellor of Germany, Joseph Wirth. His political power base came from the Catholics and the workers of Germany. He had been a war supporter, it turned as the death toll increased and the prospects for an actual victory got less and less. By 1917, with armies stalemated on both fronts, he changed what has been a pro-war, what had been a pro-war political stance and became a leading opponent of unrestricted submarine warfare. Then he made a speech in the Reichstag in which he called on the government to denounce territorial ambitions and conclude some type of negotiation to end the war, get German soldiers home. Even though many in the military were actively pressuring on the left end of politics, those most likely to pursue peace, to please do it, not all, but many in the military and the leadership of the military, The actions of Erzberger, Wirth, and others would be pointed to as evidence for the -the stab-in-the-back myth, which portrayed the surrender of Germany not as a realistic option for an overextended country in someone else's land who wasn't going to give up anytime soon, with the prospect of great reinforcement, new technologies on the way, but instead surrender that merely was a betrayal of the civilians on the home front of a war they were winning, especially all those socialist politicians who, for personal gain, traded their country. Newspapers called out Erzberger. said one right-wing broadsheet, he may be round as a bullet, referring to his size, but he is not bulletproof. The group that finally kills him in 1921 is that organization council, the OC, ultra-nationalist, anti-Semitic, terrorist organization, formed by members of the Marine Brigade Erhardt, an underground association of German Marines. After Erzberger's death, the Chancellor Joseph Wirth gives a speech in front of the Reichstag and warned, We are experiencing Germany a political brutalization that was characterized by an atmosphere of murder, of rancor, and poison. The enemy, he said, is on the right. Sometimes considered on the right in French politics, sometimes not, was George Clemenceau, the tiger, who had just returned from his tiger shooting in India. Yesterday he declared we were victorious. May we not be put today in such a position that we shall wonder whether we are still victorious. They didn't have a chance. On the afternoon of April 15, 1921, South Braintree, Massachusetts, Frederick Parminter and Alessandro Berardelli carried two metal boxes filled with money. This was the payroll for their shoe factory. They were then shot by two men who took the money, made an attention signal, and jumped into a getaway car, a Buick. It's not an easy, flawless escape. The Buick continues down Pearl Street in the town with five men in it, a gunman in the front seat firing at random in the crowd, who came out driven by the sound of the shots. No one's hit, though a bystander has his coat lapel singed. The car then speed swings left, and one of the men in the rear seat throw out a handful of tacks to hinder any pursuit that might be coming for them. The speeding car is then seen, and then it vanished. When the local sheriff, determined to find out who did the crime, he focused immediately on anarchist groups. After all, 1919 was the year of the Red Scare. Anarchist groups, particularly those of Italian descent, were being investigated. When a group of people come to pick up a car at a mechanic's shop. The mechanic calls the police, provides the license plate number, and gives a detailed description of the individuals. Later, on a trolley, police find Nicholas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. They have guns in their possession when they are arrested on the trolley. They also answer dishonestly about how they get the guns. They are also subscribers to a newspaper printed by a radical anarchist. Anarchism, to Sacco and Vanzetti, meant no government, no police, no judges, no bosses, no authority. The people own everything, work in cooperation, and distribute by needs with equality, justice, and comradeship. It's not exactly the type of, you know, punk anarchy one might expect. It's something like a mixture of libertarianism and socialism. There's a trial in May 1921, and it lasts nearly seven weeks. Fifty-nine witnesses testify for the prosecution. Witnesses' versions of the events are inconsistent, contradictory. Of 59 witnesses, five identify Sacco. One provides the license plate number of the car. Another describes a man in the getaway car, but it was 60 to 80 feet away. Only one witness sees Vendetti. The Judge Webster Thayer tells a group of friends, Did you see what I did to those anarchistic expletive deleted the other day? That will come up in a later appeal. Ballistic tests by the relatively new detective department and the Massachusetts State Police will use not the current methods of, certainly not the computer methods, nor the more modern comparison microscopes used to identify ballistics and compare weapons but will use more primitive methods, measuring bullets with calipers and comparing them to measurements made of a cast of the barrel of Sacco's pistol. One reporter called the practice a wilderness of lands and grooves. But in any case, that is used as evidence. The lead jury foreman makes prejudicial statements. This will be investigated later. Future Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter decades later is going to say there was no reason to convict. Some ballistic tests conducted in the future will line up with what the police did, but there's still suspicions about where some of the bullets came, where they're planted. The authors of a leading book on firearms identification would later call the ballistics evidence offered at the trial so primitive as to be worthless. Yet, it's really not known whether Sacco and Vanzetti committed the murders. There was a large organized crime gang that had been stealing shoes from the factory and was targeting payrolls in the area. It is clear the due process probably wasn't served and that police were blinded in their investigation to targeting Italian radicals and immigrants. In 1977, the governor of Massachusetts, Mike Dukakis, will issue posthumous apology.
0: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April
1: 9th. Russia's unsettled. When no bread arrived in Moscow. In 1921, workers became hungry and disillusioned with their new and recently won communist revolution. The Bolshevik policy of forcefully collecting grain and food supplies from peasants during the Civil War contributes to the famine. Peasants retaliate against the Soviet plundering by reducing the amount of agricultural production they do. And in 1921, planted crops are about half as much as they had been in previous years. There's a moment that happens in 1921, and it could actually be meaningless. And in fact, in this time, it is absolutely the concern of no one. The events surround a fledgling little political party that has just about 4,000 members of a country of millions. But with hindsight, these events could be incredible or not. The key speaker of the fledgling political party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the NSDAP, Nazi Party. Adolf Hitler goes to Berlin to get in touch with nationalist political activists in that part, the northern part of the country, to see if his movement based in Munich and really his audiences for his own speeches can go beyond Bavaria. While he's away, party leaders, especially Anton Drexler, the locksmith who is the leader of the NSDAP party, seize on this opportunity. They've been wanting to get him out, or at least reduce him all year. He has been an annoyance. The irritation built up with his dictatorial ways. He didn't even ask to be leader, but he's telling them all what to do. Drexler met Hitler in 1919 and handed him a flyer. discovered that he could make speeches, which to Drexler initially sounded good, because although Drexler had been voted party chairman, he was a poor public speaker. In the party's first public appearance in May of 1919, when he spoke, only 10 people showed up. Drexler wanted to merge with the German Socialist Party with a Julius Streicher who could rival Adolf Hitler's speaking, and this would at minimum dilute Hitler's power within the party, and perhaps they could get rid of him. It won't happen. Future historians looking back can only grasp at a hope that perhaps... His own party could have done away with Hitler 12 years before he took power. But Hitler gets word, heads back to Munich, calls Drexler and the rest foolish lunatics, says he'll resign from the party. The party committee is concerned because speeches are how the party is funded, and his anti-Semitic, anti-communist, anti-world speeches are bringing nationalist crowds. Meantime, Drexler puts out a pamphlet attacking Hitler And the lies he's telling, the pamphlet says he twists every fact. Make up your minds about such characters. He's a demagogue, this coming from within the party. He fills you up with tales that are anything but the truth. Now, Drexler is not a nice guy by any means. And since this is a group of anti-Semites, he uses the worst curse that he can call Hitler, calling his actions Jew-like. This is Drexler speaking. It's horrible, but the fact is, if Drexler's bid succeeded, who knows? But it doesn't work. The former corporal brings a libel suit against Drexler and others who offered the pamphlet. Drexler's forced to repudiate it at a party meeting, and he is downsized in his leadership role, turned into an honorary, and he'll leave the party mid-20s. The new president, Warren Harding, surprises many when he goes down to the South to Birmingham and Atlanta and makes speeches calling out the South and its treatment of African American citizens. Whether you like it or not, Harding says, our democracy is a lie unless you stand for that equality. Pointing, the president is pointing at silent whites in the crowd. But then he switches, and throwing out a bone to the audience, racial amalgamation there cannot be. Even with that, and with a comment saying that race pride is healthy, there's a bitter reaction to the speech in this house. A senator from Mississippi warns, if the president's theory is carried to its ultimate conclusion, then that means that the black man can strive to become president of the United States. Another senator from Georgia says, The idea that a politician from Ohio should go down to the South and there plant fatal germs in the minds of our black population. There are other reactions. Marcus Garvey welcomes the president as a sage and a man of great vision. Du Bois says, It's sudden thunder from the skies, the president's speech. Yet the talking about mixing races... And trying to stop that bugs him. Could the President of the United States not understand that there are 4 million mixed-race people in the country that he runs, he asks? In the UK, unemployment now stands at over 1 million. The government announces an increase in unemployment benefits. As the world's largest airship, the British R-38, makes its maiden flight in Bedford, UK, rainfall in the end of June ends a drought. It had lasted in Britain for 100 days. Around the same time, a coal strike ends, a long coal strike, with the Miners' Federation of Great Britain obliged to accept pay cuts and no national bargaining. Charlie Chaplin visits London in 1921. He's met by thousands. The second female member of Parliament, Margaret Winchengram, enters Parliament after her election. The first women are admitted to study for full academic degrees at the University of Cambridge. Airship R-38 explodes on her fourth test flight near Kingston-upon-Hull, killing 44 of the 49 Anglo-American crew on board. The four-power treaty on insular possessions between the Empire of Japan, United Kingdom, United States, and the French Third Republic agree to recognize the status quo of islands in the Pacific. Born in this year, Stephen Allen, the American actor, composer, and comedian. Died in this year, Champ Clark, former Speaker of the House and possible presidential candidate. Edward Douglas White, the ninth Chief Justice of the United States. Lady Randolph Churchill, mother of Winston Churchill. And Philander Knox, Theodore Roosevelt's Attorney General. In China, the first National Congress of the Chinese... Communist Party was held in Shanghai between July 23rd and August 2nd. The Congress established the Chinese Communist Party. Oddly enough, a Dutch national and a Communist Party leader in that country is partially responsible for setting up the Chinese Communist Party, for suggesting that they have this meeting. Warren Harding gets an interesting visitor, Princess Fatima of Afghanistan. She arrives escorted by State Department Naval Liaison Officer Stanley Clifford Wyman. It later turns out, while Princess Fatima is really of Afghanistan, Wyman is not of the Navy or any government service at all. He's merely an imposter who recognized that the princess was visiting the United States and trying to get recognition. U.S. State Department ignores her. Wyman convinces the princess to give him $10,000 for presents to State Department officials. He uses that money for a private railway carriage, hotels, various gifts. Pretending to be friends of various senators, he gets into the State Department. He meets with Secretary of State Charles Evan Hughes, who doesn't realize Wyman is not liaison officer. And then finally, with President Warren Harding. When he makes minor mistakes in protocol, some suspicions are aroused. But after the press published pictures showing him alongside dignitaries, he is then indicted for impersonating a naval officer, and sentenced to two years in jail. Wyman later, in 1926, will appear at Rudolph Valentino's funeral and attach himself to Valentino's grieving lover, Pola Negri, pretending to be a personal physician, issuing regular press releases on her condition and establishing a faith-healing clinic in Valentino's house. It would take a while for newspapers to pick up on Wyman's various imposter stunts they were hammered. Flo Ziegfeld provided little wooden hammers for a special show that would take place in 1921 at the Ziegfeld Theater and insist that theatergoers would have sore hands because they would be applauding so much and encourage them to hammer the table. It features comedian Eddie Cantor, Paul Whitman's orchestra, and Helen Morgan, who was known for singing while sitting on the piano. This started from necessity. At the original places that Morgan would play, there wasn't enough room for her to stand. The crowds loved it, so she continued. She was a torch singer. That meant she sang sad songs about lost or unrequited love. In West Virginia, the Battle of Blair Mountain, the largest labor uprising in the United States begins. It's also the country's largest peacetime armed uprising. It begins in Logan County, West Virginia, as part of the Cold Wars. Miners and National Guard will have several battles. It won't just be the National Guard clearing out miners. There's actual firefights and battles between the two sides. It'll last throughout the year. After a speech by Adolf Hitler in the Hofbraus in Munich, Germany, members of his brown shirts physically assault his opposition. It is a tactic he decides he likes and will keep. The Shepherd-Towner Act is signed by President Harding, providing federal funding for maternity and child care. It provides federal funds to states to establish programs to educate people about prenatal health and infant welfare. This is enacted by the Harding administration and the Congress to curb the high infant mortality rate in the United States. Many states accepted funding through this act, leading to the establishment of nearly 3,000 prenatal care clinics and 180,000 infant care seminars and over 3 million home visits by traveling nurses and a national distribution of educational literature for the rest of the decade. It is an relatively unknown accomplishment of the Harding presidency. Eventually, Soviet leader Vladimir Lenin found a solution to his problem of feeding his new nation with a workforce that didn't want to grow food. His solution? The United States of America, and particularly Herbert, future U.S. President Herbert Hoover. His American Relief Administration, ARA, was tasked to help save Soviet children. By September 1st, 1921, the first American Relief Administration aid is is arriving in Petrograd. Unfortunately, even this couldn't get food to everyone. Failing rail systems and uncooperative rail workers were stalling the relief effort. By the next year, ARA would be, and Herbert Hoover would be, feeding 11 million Soviets per day. On Valentine's Day, while F. Scott Fitzgerald was working to finish his second novel, The Beautiful and Damned, Zelda Fitzgerald discovered she was pregnant. They decided to go to his home in St. Paul, Minnesota to have the baby. And on October 26, 1921, Zelda gave birth to their daughter and only child, Frances Scotty Fitzgerald. As Zelda emerged from the anesthesia, F. Scott Fitzgerald recorded her saying, Oh God, oh I'm so drunk. Mark Twain, isn't she smart? She has the hiccups. I hope it's beautiful, and a fool, a beautiful little fool. Fitzgerald utilizes some of her rambling in his later writing. In fact, the words appear almost verbatim in Daisy Buchanan's dialogue from The Great Gadsby. I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you like the program, please tell someone about it.